between theists and atheists is reaching a fever pitch. Some seek to find common understanding and agreement. This is a place where we begin with differences and end with similarities. This is Apologia. Hello and welcome to Apologia. My name is Zachary Moore, and the following is an impromptu discussion that sprung up while we were preparing to talk a little bit more about free will. It was kind of a last-minute thing, and so unfortunately we weren't able to have uh, Kevin, Kyle, Steve, or any of the other theists join us. But we did gather together Dan, Danny, and Rodrigo Neely from the Mind-Body Problem discussion we've had earlier. This was a spur-of-the-moment decision to switch topics, and since we didn't have a full crew, it was informal, but I think the outcome was fascinating nonetheless. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, Rodrigo. Hey. What's new? Nothing much. Actually, um, we were just about to uh, record an Apologia episode and wondering if you had some free time and might want to sit in with us again. Yeah, I, I, I don't see why not. I was just folding some clothes. I'm having kind of an eventful day. I don't know if you knew this, but my wife was divorcing me, and she just called me up to say that she... Well, we just talked on the phone, and she said she wants to get back together. So I'm, Oh, my goodness. Oh, congratulations. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty euphoric. <laughs> <laughs> and you shows your voice, man. And so you're just sitting around folding clothes and all that ecstatic... <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's great. Yeah, I actually missed the Church of Free Thought meeting this Sunday mostly because I was just depressed. Uh huh. So it's a it's a nice contrast. That's funny because I was just listening to your podcast where you were talking about that, and I was like, "Oh man, are you kidding me?" Yeah, I mean, you know, she's she's got a real hardcore independent streak, and she was just kind of freaking out about being married, and uh, she had just gotten a new job in New York. Yeah, I knew about that. So you know, she was like. Okay, I'm in New York and I'm making money. You and I are getting a divorce. <laughs> wow. And I was me like, and my wife just split up this summer as well, but we're not getting back together. Yeah, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm with you though. On the, I, I, I feel like I can, it, I can definitely still sympathize. Yeah, I mean, ours was a different situation because it was mutual. We both thought it was the right thing to do together. We talked about it kind of for a long time beforehand. We got married when we were Christians, and we got married because Jesus told us to, and so it wasn't quite the right kind of foundation. We were really young, but not really, hey, we just didn't want to be married, and, and there was no one, no God to boss us around anymore. Yeah, well, Kalisa and I were actually both religious when we got married, too. I think it gave us a lot of misconceptions about marriage. Same here. Kitty and I wound up, uh, we split up twice before we found a way to be together without having to deal with the shit we were being married as well, so... Yeah, yeah. When one takes a naturalist of like like philosophy and starts thinking about things like marriage, you know, like I don't even believe in romantic love, but I sure do like being around her. <laughs> you know, I I think it's all unless you want to define romantic love as like all these operational like like pieces coming together. Well, why not? Most of the stuff that we define as something is just made up of a bunch of, of, a bunch of operational pieces put together. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I just tend to, I tend to, to talk about not believing in romantic love, mostly, uh, mostly for the, to try to shake up people's, like, supernatural ideas about love. I think, I think, oh, most, yeah. 
most people have like implicit supernatural ideas about love in which they 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 don't even realize that what they're thinking is supernatural. Amen to that. You know what? This is actually a really great show idea. <laughs> Let's do it. We were we were starting to um uh actually when we were getting together we were going to be talking about free will, but this is actually um I think quite a productive conversation. So yeah, oh, this would be good, and then we could do the free will idea when we got the Christians back. This is actually really interesting because, you know, one of the the big things that, that drives me crazy and I'm sure it drives you guys crazy is um, this this concept of the definition of traditional marriage. So one man, one woman, and and what was it? I was just listening to the Freedom From Religion Foundation uh, podcast, Free Thought Radio, and they were they were quoting um, um, it was actually Obama. Uh, Barack Obama at the um, the Saddleback Forum, where he was talking oh, about marriage and what he believes marriage is, and he he um, he said something to the effect of, you know, well, it's you know, one man and one woman, and for me personally as a Christian, it also means that God is in the mix. And so, you know, what does that mean? God is in the mix, and I know that's um, you know that that's that's all bound up into this traditional, you know. R- definition of religion but you know it's it's so funny too because you know back in you know back in my grandparents generation there were a lot of people that didn't get married in the church people just you know went to the justice of the peace etc etc my grandfather after my grandmother passed away and he got remarried uh briefly he just went down to the justice of the peace he didn't think anything of it he didn't even think enough of it to um to invite any of his family it was just like oh well you know this is just something that you do and so it's it's so so funny to me that this this concept, this this traditional marriage concept, is out there, and it seems to be all wrapped up in uh, religious language and and concepts. And why is that? Yeah, that's an interesting point. That 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 may be like a recent cultural phenomenon. Religion religion is always um, well, not always, but you know, kind of undulating through history. Sometimes it's been the major registrar and officiator of marriage, and sometimes it hasn't. It usually depends, I think, on how um, how urban and settled the civilization is. The more frontier-like you get, the more perfunctory marriage gets, whereas the more um, settled the civilization is, the more the institutions take over to try to ensure cultural continuity. So it's it's however much the society is invested in the concept of marriage that determines to the extent that which um, religion plays a role? Is that what you're saying? Um, I think that's part of it, but I think it's more complicated than that. I think stuff that gets shuffled off to churches or to governments is usually stuff that enough of the population thinks is too important to leave up to the individual. Well, I mean, it's like with this whole gay marriage thing um, being so politicized, and I'm sure that 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 it, that all of us are in favor of the legalization of gay marriage. But it's it has kind of brought marriage more recently into the political into the political arena, and it's and it's uh, got people like talking about what it means to them, and it's become a part of the national discourse in the media. I I think that it's harmful. I think that that you don't have the right tools to be married. At least I don't have the right tools to be married unless I take a naturalistic outlook, because you know. You you have all this guilt and all these these weird feelings when problems arise, and 
they're all stuff that, that we're all built with. Like, for example, like just having desire for other sexual partners. It, it, at least from my own anecdotal experience <laughs> and, and a little bit of what I've read, you know, problems are just common and, and relatively predictable in relationships. And when you take a naturalistic approach to it and you're like, okay, well, some of these problems are going to be environmental, but some of them are just part of being human. You can kind of brace yourself to work them out a little better than if you if you give this cosmic significance to things. Like the example I was bringing up was like like uh, desire for other sexual partners, which which a, a lot of men relieve probably by watching pornography. Well, this this causes a lot of problems in a marriage, and and you know, and there's probably different ways to do it for different people to deal with this problem. But you know, like if you look at a lot of the Christian porn addiction sites, like where they talk about it, it they really make like the fact that when you're a heterosexual guy looking at naked women turning you on is like this big uni- like crisis in the universe. <laughs> oh, absolutely! In fact, years ago, years ago, I went to um, believe it or not, back back when I was still a Christian, I went to a Promise Keepers convention. I went to. Um, Anyway, so I went to a Promise Keepers convention, and it was, you know, I mean, it was, for the most part, it was fairly benign. It was just guys getting around, being, you know, male and, and Christian and, and trying to be friends with each other, which was fine. Chests. Yeah, beating their chests and all that stuff. Um, but at the very beginning, I, I remember this specifically because it was just, um, the way that this was delivered was so emphatic and so... Um, uh, urgent, I guess. Um, because all these men, we were all out of town. Um, I was, I was living in, uh, just outside of Cincinnati and the, and the convention was in Indianapolis. So most of us were out of town and, and staying in places. And, um, I, ca- I don't remember who was there, um, leading the, the events, but they start talking about, okay, you men, now you know, once we're done with the convention, you're going to have to go back to your hotel rooms and you're going to have to resist the urge to order up the adult movie, you know, because that's Satan talking to you and you have to be strong and you have to think about your wife at home and, and. Pornos suck. What's that? All those pornos suck anyway. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, I, I reek the hotel. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I don't know if these were connoisseurs that he was talking to, but, yeah, um, but at any rate, it was just the, the urgency and the, um, the emphatic way that he, you know, this was like, you know, I mean, almost as if you're going to say, all right, look, men, there is a radiation leak outside of this door. So when you exit the building, please leave out the, the east or the west exit, but not out the south exit because you will die if you walk through the, you know, whatever's out there. There's some, you know, radioactive cobalt or something out there. You know, in my church, when I was growing up, it was all about... um purity and and not just cleansing like not just the actions but the thoughts you know there's that verse about have not even a hint of lust and so it was like it was almost like the pharisees you know how the pharisees would make up new rules in order to mm-hmm. help them follow the rules that were real so you had these complete new set of rules we had it was like that you know you had to walk around and look down and you had to be an introvert and you had to suppress your own sexual desires and you had to see everything that you wanted as bad unless you happened to be married to it and, yeah, well, let's not even get started about Islam. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, this is where we get the burqas. This is where 
where we get the hijabs. It says in the Quran that men are supposed to avert their gaze when a woman is present. Hmm. Well, you know, that's good advice if you want to not, you know, I mean, if, if that's what's important to you, I guess, to, to not even get tempted, not even lead, go down that road. I can imagine you, you would not even yeah. want to look at it. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. There's, uh, there, there's a, this, this long and healthy monastic tradition of pederasty that makes to differ. Oh. People, people have sex drives and it's going to come out one way or the other. You're either going to masturbate or you're going to fuck something. <laughs> that, that's, that's the way it is. Yeah. yeah unless and, perhaps you're, you're really good at meditation. Right. Well, Dan, tell me if you tell me if you agree with this or not. I mean, like, obviously, pornography can be a problem in terms of like people can get so wrapped up in the fantasy of the porn that they can't hold down any sort of real relationship because they're getting all their fantasies fulfilled through fantasies and they're not doing it. But of course, I'd from from those extremes. I mean, the whole idea of looking at pornography as like something you just feel like doing because it's exciting because it get, turns your crank you know it's a lot of couples do it together or they talk about how they watch it you know and, and it's one of those things that can stimulate a very healthy sex life yeah when um, when you're I think all this when, is kind of chill. yeah when something when something when a natural appetite is forbidden you give it a lot of power a lot of artificial power that doesn't already have um, it's like when you're on a fast right or, or if you're trying to follow a diet you know, normally, if you're on if you're on a diet where like you're not having hamburgers, normally you might not think I want a hamburger, but once every couple of weeks. But once that is strictly prescribed, what is it you think of every time you get hungry? God, I wish I could have a hamburger. Right? Yeah. That's the way human psychology works. Um, and, and yeah, um, be, being obsessed with pornography actually lowers the sex drive. Um, there's a lot of good research on that, but it. Uh, that's why it has bad effects on relationships. Yeah, that's why it has bad effects on relationships because um, because if you're engaging in uh, in fantasy to such an extent, you're, you're spending your sex drive somewhere else, somewhere other than in your relationship. And if your partner has high desire, well, you're going to create problems because your partner is not getting satisfied with you are. And that's a bad thing. Sex studies broadly are probably something worth bringing up. Um, um, what do y'all think of? The, are y'all? I'm. I'm sure Dan is because he's a human encyclopedia. But <laughs> are the rest of you are, are the rest of you familiar with the, the Kinsey study versus the Masters and Johnson study versus like the more recent like I can't remember. It's got a really really boring acronym name, but there's I heard about it was published under the it was published as a book called Sex in America. Yeah, so there's basically there's three major studies, and and uh, the Kinsey study was basically we just talk about Kinsey because he was the pioneer of the whole thing and and uh, some of his ideas have, have stood the test of time, broadly speaking, but his statistics were really bad. Um, uh, there's a great movie about it that starts uh, stars Liam Neeson. The Masters and Johnson study, they um, they looked at all the physiological responses toward, toward sex by basically getting people to have sex with all kinds of weird electrodes all over them. And then the more Didn't recent... Didn't they only use college students, though, for that study? Or did they use the whole range of ages? Uh, and Masters and Johnson uh, were a research team. They actually got married. They were, they were doing yeah. work together for 20 or 25 years. And they, at, at the beginning, they started with college students. But as their, as 
as they grew on, they, they sampled from all age groups. But, but, there, but there are valid critiques of their sample because uh, the, the, the argument tends to go is that the only people Masters and Johnsons could study were the people who would be willing to have sex with a bunch of electrodes all over them. And that, that, right. Right. <laughs> so that, so that, they're porn stars and, and, and amateur porn stars. Well, yeah, right. So that's the, that's the, the critique. And then the, the other one is, a it's like NHLS or something. I'm, I'm, I'm butchering, I'm sure the name of it. Um, but they, uh, it's a sociological survey and it's considered by most, most, um, most, uh, sex psychologists to be pretty reliable. If anything, it's, it's like, it's predictions that are like kind of shocking, like the occurrence of homosexuality or whatever is, uh, they, they tend to, Consider it to be on the conservative side, so yeah, that exactly. whatever the, this survey comes up with is is the bare minimum of what's true. Yeah, they deliberately set out to avoid and fi- or to they they deliberately set out to fix the flaws that they saw in Kinsey's methodology. In fact, the first chapter and a half of the book is about what parts of Kinsey's methodology they thought was good, what they thought was bad, and why they thought that, and how they, you know, it's it sets out their whole their whole survey uh, program in the first chapter. Right. So what what you find with when you look at at at, at some of these report uh, these studies is basically is that that for one there is a lot of variety individual difference in humans broadly speaking about what how they define a healthy sex life. Right. Uh, like monogamy seems to be pretty broadly in fashion, but people's mentality about monogamy varies. Uh, well, what? Also, I don't think we're biologically really meant for bi- uh, monogamy. No, but this what? is a sociological survey, not a biological. A sociological. Survey. R- right, okay. right. Well, but we is should. It, this is a, about what people do, not what people should do. Or what people but, think. That's interesting, though, because like, why does that counter the biology so much? I, I doesn't really. It doesn't. And uh, uh, another name, it, I about sixty sixty percent of men and. 48 or 52% of women in long-term monogamous relationships cheat. And that average, and they're not all with each other. So that average is out to somewhere between 60 and 80% of all monogamous relationships have adultery going on at some point during, the, uh, right. during their tenure. There's also another name worth bringing up is, is, is a hero of mine, David M. Buss, who's an evolutionary psychologist who, who studies human mating. He's found like, an interesting thing that he's found is that cross-culturally, it seems that women do really tend to prefer uh, older men with more resources, while men tend to focus more on looks. Uh, he's he's caught a lot of hell for this research. And another, I'm sure that um, another, another person. Sorry. No, I just wanted to say that I'm sure that they're valid critiques. Yeah, another, I, I always uh, have to say that when I say someone's one of my heroes. Oh yeah. <laughs> Another person whose work, uh, whose work is worth checking out is Helen Fishers, who concentrates on the evolutionary heritage and the neurophysiology of um, how attachment, infatuation, sexuality, and bonding works. Her first book was The Anatomy of Love. Why do we have the subtitle? It's a, it's a, it, it relies a lot on what um, Buss's work and, um, and the work psychologists and of neurology studying that um, the effects of oxytocin on bonding during sex, the roles that other chemicals play, what sorts of things trigger these things, why relationships tend to go from 
really intense attachment to kind of distant, comfortable attachment that about four years very reliably and had divorce rates tag at very predictable points during the marriage over across cultures all over the world. Yeah, there does you're right, there does seem to be this kind of like long term like predictable development of relationships. Where where it, it's it becomes more of an intimate friendship and less of like a romantic fuckfest. If I remember correctly, uh, Helen Fisher also did. Uh, uh, she's published some uh, hypotheses about the female orgasm. Uh, yeah, she has. Um, yeah, oh yeah, that's right. I um, I actually uh, referred you to one of her articles. Yeah. Well, that's um. Well, it, I don't think. Oh, go ahead, Danny. Well, I was just going to say, like, I don't think this conversation would be complete if we didn't start talking about things like kinks and fetishes and those kind of things. Because uh, paraphilia. Those <laughs> no, I'm not pedophilia. I mean, I'm talking about like just the regular. No, paraphilia. Paraphilia. Oh, paraphilia. paraphilia is the is the technical name for fetishes in, in sex research. I just call it kinky shit or the or the weird shit. Yeah, but that yeah, paraphilia is everything from furries to to like like foot fetish. Yeah, but I mean, even things like BDSM are that's not quite. It seems like paraphilia. Growth. It's not a paraphilia. It's a kink. I mean, it's it's like some people like pain a little bit when they're when they're making love. They like scratches. They like slaps, spanks, those kind of things. And some people maybe on the outside see that as some sort of, you know, maybe it trails to some psychological abuse, maybe it's unhealthy or something, but, you know, I, I think that there's, I think humans are just sort of built in to have different kinks, and it seems like everybody has something that well, maybe and, and, push yeah. the, the normal vanilla missionary position sex, you know, oh, every, everybody wants a little something else. And the, where, um, where do we draw the line between when those are, are bad and good? You know, there's the, the golden showers or the, you know, peeing on people, that seems relatively safe. There's nothing really wrong with urine. It's, you know, they're having a good time. Whereas, you know, if you want to take a dump in someone's mouth, you <laughs> have a lot Pretty of... dangerous. Yeah. yeah, you have some legitimate, like, uh, you know, infectious diseases to worry about. And along with all the other regular STDs. Has there been a good, like, book, like a humanist book written on sexual ethics? I was actually wondering this. No, year. actually, I've just been talking to a friend of mine about trying to write one, but I haven't gotten around to actually. Because that's actually something I, 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 you know, I think about a lot. Like, you know, like my whole idea about ethics is that it's kind of a, and really, if we're going to talk about love and marriage, I think that's what we're really talking about. We're we're mm-hmm. we're talking about eth- like ethics essentially, and you know, and, and the religious view is kind of like, from my understanding. I mean, there's a broad spectrum of religious views too. Like in the Old Testament, I mean, the Bible's really just not very romantic. It, 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 the, the closest, <laughs> not at all. the closest thing you have to romance in the Bible is, is um, I guess the the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which isn't so much That's romance hot. as porn there too. Yeah. yeah, which is itself porn, really. Well, so it's hilarious that Christians are kind of like. Like, like dubbing themselves the, the heroes of marriage and, and at least the progressive, like moderate Muslims that I've met, because basically if you're Muslim and you're talking to me, you're probably pretty moderate. <laughs> they, they stress to me that in Islam, like philosophically, Islam has seen mar- marriage as kind of as a business contract. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, and 
Good. In in my Christian background, it was it was, you know, you'd you'd often hear a preacher stand up and say, "Sex is awesome," and everyone would cheer. Sex is wonderful. Woo! God gave us sex in, within marriage, and and you know, mm-hmm. and so it'd always be like within marriage, it's the most amazing thing, and you can do it all the time, and you can have crazy sex, and it's wonderful. But within marriage, so the the whole song of Solomon thing, they they used to talk about that. They're like, yeah, this is a mature book. This is this is a book that is intended for uh, you know, either to be read as an allegory of the of Christ in the church, or as an actual sort of set of love letters between a married, sanctified, Jesus-approved marriage. See, I've, I've never really understood... I mean, when, when, you, when you actually look at that, it makes about as much sense, you know, the whole sex is great, but only within marriages. Like saying, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are great, but only if you eat them in the bathroom. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you know, well, there is good. some that, merit like to that. the idea that if you're going to have sex with somebody, it's not just sex all the time. I mean, there, there always is emotional things. I mean, especially if, if the person you're, you're having sex with, if, if you two aren't communicating about your intentions, about what this sex means, um, one person might think that it means that it, it's true love and you're going to stay with me forever. And the other person might think, I just want to fuck right now because I'm horny. Um, that can cause huge problems. And, and you can see why, like, yeah, wait, hold on. Don't just have sex with somebody. Like, wait a minute. You know, let's talk about it. Make sure that you know the responsibilities given because you know, think they didn't have birth control. So, you know, it's very possible that you could get this person pregnant or whatever. And there's some legitimate life issues here. Well, okay, but that, and that's great. And that's an, a very intelligent, rational explanation of, of why, you know, we need sexual ethics and we, you know, we, we maybe should not rush into sexual activity all willy nilly, but you'd never hear that type of thing from Pat Robertson or, you know, James Dobson or those guys. It's always just, you know, only in marriage, only in marriage, only in marriage. When I was a, when I was a religious Christian, no, Zach's actually met me in person, so he, he knows that what I'm saying is true. I'm covered in tattoos. I'm, like, completely covered in tattoos. This like is true. I have, and, and I'm kind of a thuggish-looking guy. And I and I was trying to be, like, this fundamentalist, charismatic Christian. And, <laughs> and I was abstaining from sex until marriage, but I could never get any of the hot Christian girls to go out with me because I looked <laughs> like such a... A, a jerk <laughs> and I couldn't even get them to go out with me and much less like have any prospect of, of getting married. So then I would go date punk rock girls because they would actually go out with me and I would feel guilty that I wasn't being a good Christian. Well, then you got to convert. And if you, and if you didn't have sex with them, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I have definitely been cast on, <laughs> on the wayside because I, I did not respond to the appropriate cues. <laughs> Yeah. But I think the the whole the whole notion that you were getting at Zach is that sex is magic. Mm. <laughs> no, I'm I'm deadly serious. It's kind of pejorative, but I'm deadly serious. If you can project yourself back into a, a more primitive mindset before we knew about zygotes and gametes and how reproduction actually worked, sex is magic. You're, you have sex and you're creating life. That's a sacred activity. Every religion in the world has had fertility rites or fertility rituals. The fertility rite in Christianity was marriage. The, you know, and, and some of the older cults had, uh, had some very 
Temple prostitution was a big prostitution. one. But sex was sex was seen as magic. That was the only way they had to understand it. And that attitude has carried forward in religious circles because their holy books and the doctrines are formulated at a time when the only way to understand sex was that this is the power of God that you're exercising. And when you've got something that you think is that spiritually potent, you want to build a ritual structure around it to contain it, to control it, to protect the rest of society from the consequences of it, to account for the possible consequences, and to somehow put this this emotionally powerful thing, this thing that can make life, into a context that um, allows you to cope with it, where you don't have to be worrying about it all the time. And I think that's really I think what you hear Dobson and Falwell, the true love weights weirdos and everybody else going on about is, is because they still believe that sex is magic. And that's the only thing, that's the only reason I think there can be any sensible moral opposition to gay marriage is if you think that sex is magic, then you'd see society approving of unholy sex as risking the wrath of God. Mm. Yeah, and because it doesn't. It does, you know, every gay people get married that doesn't threaten your marriage. It doesn't have anything to do with it unless you think that sex is magic and that marriage is a sanctification of sex. And that worldview thinks that consciousness is magic. And so yes. I, you know, imagine feeling an orgasm in a worldview where you think that consciousness is magic. You're definitely going to think sex is magic. Oh, like. What the hell was that? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. That's fair. that's actually very interesting, Dan. And I think that provides me at least um, some more insight into why um, why there's such a vehement uh, rejection of gay marriage, homosexual marriage. Um, if you think about it, as you say, if the the, the subconscious um, appreciation of marriage is as a um, a vessel for sex, which is a magical um, activity or totem. And typically, within magic, we find um, that what you have to do to uh, to take something good and turn it evil is um, reverse the act. You know, turn it upside down. And so, in that case, uh, homosexual sex is like the black magic version of the white magic of heterose- heterosexual sex. And so the, I can see that aversion to um, gay marriage um, because it's being perceived, at, at least subconsciously, as, you know, this is bad voodoo going on here. They, they, they can't really – and I've, I've, I've gone to uh, a number of people who are against it and, and asked for, you know, what, what exactly is the reason? What exactly is the problem here? What, you know, what is damaging to you? And I can, I've never been able to get any real response other than, well, they just don't like it and it's just not right. But if it's something that, that, you know, speaks to them subconsciously and says, this is, this is a reversal of, of this magical special thing that I've always considered has to be, you know, kept in this, in this certain vessel, that you're reversing the, the white magic of heterosexual sex that, that, that produces young, and you're turning that into the black magic of gay sex. I think they get a lot of that from Romans because, you know, there's that thing in Romans where it talks about how um, God has given them up to their unnatural desires where women burn for other women. 
and men burn for other men. And I, 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 I would have to guess though that Romans merely reinforces an automatic intuition that goes on. Yeah. You can, if you read, particularly if you read some of the encyclicals that came out of Vatican around, um, around the time the birth control was developed, uh, and you read um, some of the Protestant uh, literature on sex from Luther, you'll see it, it's only been in, in the last couple of decades once birth control has become normal, once people have gotten used to divorce and used to the fact that a cosmopolitan society, that you see the magical language kind of trickling out of the Christian literature and being replaced by psychological language. Um, but if you go back just a couple generations, the language is currently and unapologetically so. Very fascinating. You know, this is, um, the, the sex talk is all, all great and interesting, everything. Um, but dr- drilling back down into the concept of marriage, um, is is that really the only difference? Uh, just the way that atheists and theists treat um, sex, how they regard it, um, because, like I mentioned um, when we were talking earlier about uh, what Obama, what Barack Obama was saying about you know he viewed marriage as a man and a woman and God in the mix. Now I've actually I've never um, when I got married we were. Basically, you make me a sad Democrat. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sorry to bring that up again, but um, but I do want I do want to ask you guys because like I'm so glad to be a third party. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask you guys because when I was married, um, there was there were only two people involved. God was definitely not in the mix. So I've, I've are you not married anymore? I know your recording is probably not a good time to ask. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm still married. But when I when uh, when I was married, married, yeah, when I was getting married. Okay, uh, I should say um, there was there were only two people involved, and God was not in the mix. Um, but for you guys, that was different. And so, what is that? And now, I, I guess you're you're seeing what the other side of that is like. What is it? What is that fundamental difference? What is it like trying to um, live a married life with God in the mix versus now um, that He's no longer in the picture? I um, think I I kind of had like this like like kind of state of enlightenment and like myth about it that like there like there was just a way that there was a way that you could experience love with with your wife that was somehow representative of like communion between humanity and God and I was always striving for that which gave me unrealistic expectations and and probably made me really over the top and clingy <laughs> more than anything else <laughs> That was my experience. Um, well, uh, I got married really young because um, my uh, um, girlfriend at the time and I were in high school and we were total Jesus freaks. You know, we were involved in the youth group and everything like that. And so the whole the whole church culture was basically like you court somebody until you know that God says you're ready to be married and then you get engaged and then you go to premarital counseling. And we did all that and... One of the things they would always stress is, and they actually would have a illustration for this. So you take two pieces of rope or two pieces of string, and this represents you two, and you twist it up, right? And then you're you're bound together. But if Satan gets in between it, and they'll take their finger at the top of the rope and split the two ropes in half, and see Satan can go destroy your marriage. But and then they take a red string, so and then they weave them together and say this is like Christ binding your marriage together. And then they would take their finger, and you couldn't. 
you couldn't break it apart because it was woven together. And that was like an effective argument for poly relationships. Yeah. <laughs> as, long, as long as your, uh, your, your piece on the side is Jesus. Um, no, and, and so I, when I was, when I was married and a Christian, I basically saw, I saw it basically as kind of my life's path, you know, my purpose. Um, that's my number one thing. My, uh, I, I had a very clear set of priorities. It was my first priority is Jesus and my relationship with the Lord. My second priority is my wife and then everything else under that, including children, right? Were I to have had children, they would, be a slightly lesser priority than my wife. If I had to choose between the children and the wife, you know, like Batman style, you have to run to save one of them, I would sadly have to choose my wife because that's that hierarchy of needs and um, or of, of, of importance. And so I, I really did see it as kind of a grand scheme thing. Um, that's why divorce was sort of never even an option. Uh, my wife and I both sort of deconverted around the same time and... We were still married for maybe a year, year and a half after that, and it was great. I mean, we still loved each other and everything, but what was missing was that uh, external imperative that we must stay together because god that's God's plan for us. Um, our plans in our life were now based on reason and, um, you know, evidence and, and these kind of things, and, and we were able to sort of step back and look at this, and, you know, we decided that, you know what, we don't want to be married. We we still have a lot of life to live. Um, it was great. It was fun. It was true. You know, I, I don't regret any of, of my marriage or even the silly way I acted about it or, or the silly silly stuff I used to say about it. Um, but deconverting was definitely a huge thing because that basically took away the external um, force that's driving the direction of my life. Now I see my direction of life is much more random but still exciting because it's like who knows what's going to be next i don't have i don't have a plan set out for me i get to sort of dance around in in this um in the universe where so many different random things happen to random people and you could take a take a left turn instead of a right turn and meet somebody who's going to change the rest of your life and um so it's very exciting yeah this this is something I really brings up an idea that I really want to talk about and 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 actually when when Dan was saying the stuff about sex it, it it made me think of it too it's that you know historically if you take this historical perspective that Dan has suggested which which I would tend towards it, it reminds me a lot of Bob like the, just the kind of stuff that Bob Price teaches us about ancient history you know that you know people were making it up as they went along with as but as best a reasoning as they could. Um, and you know, and we're stuck with 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 basically all these ideas that are probably really are built around sex being magic. But then, when 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 you when you don't have religion in the mix, then you really you kind of have this blank slate. I mean, what do you have? You have sexual desire. You have your toolbox for ethical inquiry, and then you have to ask yourself what you want. I mean, like. We really are kind of making this up as we go. I, I take that kind of like existentialist view of it that, that I'm, that, you know, basically like ethics is trial and error and, 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 and trying to figure out what works best for you. Um, and with marriage, like, I know that I want to be married as a secularist, as a secular humanist, as someone who's not religious. But for me, marriage is really, it's like, it's more like, 
the idea of having someone in your corner in that kind of an intense way in life, like a really, really close friend, like the closest possible friend. A companion. Right. And you're going to choose the best companion possible. In fact, companion happens to also be romantic and, and fulfill all the different, pers- or, you know, many different personal needs that you need in a companion. You know, they're responsible. They, they understand uh, how to manage a family, a household, a life, and then also have a fulfilling sex life and a fulfilling... Yeah, why not get married? To me, marriage is... is is basically a contract signed between two consenting adults who who are basically saying that we are in this Jimmy, together. We're in this like. Well, so so what then is what then is the athe? I mean, if we're talking about all these things that it is not, what is what is the atheist marriage made up of? What is the goal of the atheist marriage? I mean, the way I laid it out is the way I see it. Is it's it's a contract between just two a, consenting adults. Just simply, that a, they, yeah. I mean, that's that's what a marriage license really ensues. It's it's saying we we are going to pay the same taxes, we're going to pay the same bills, we're going to raise the same kids, we're going to be a mem- a, a, a team for society. And I think I think definitely there's there's the idea that two people working together can com- contribute much more to society than necessarily one person can. Not always, but you know, there's certain people who who need to just kind of get together with somebody. Two heads are better than one idea. You know, raising kids is a lot of work. It's going to take more than one people, person. Which I'm not opposed to uh, polyamorous marriage. I, I don't see why three, four, or five, ten people can't, as consenting adults, sign a contract and say that they're all collectively married. But isn't that isn't that something that you could just do with your college buddy? Like I'm think I'm thinking of the uh, the Adam Sandler and Kevin James movie where they just they got married, you know, simply for the the insurance benefits. I've, I've got to jump in. I've been been wanting to jump in for a while. I've uh, one thing that actually started happening uh, quite a few years before. I I've actually kind of grown up the idea of marriage per se. Partly as a result of studying the history, partly all the magical thinking I was exposed to around it as a kid, but I just don't like it. I, I think I, most of the stuff that makes it up, you know, um, faithfulness to a commitment, um, working as a team, um, you know, spending your life with someone you care about, I, I, I think all of those things are wonderful, but marriage still carries with it the sense of proprietary ownership of your partner. I just can't get past. I'm yeah. actually philosophically quite opposed to it for that reason. Even though, I mean, the reason that my partner and I are still married, even though we don't talk about it, we, we don't talk about it. It's kind of like the dirty secret when we're still married. And the reason is that we decided not to get divorced because we share a business. Now we're still partners in every social sense, and we share a home, but we both have the same opinion about marriage. If we had it to do over again, we would do. All of it over again, except the getting married part. Hmm. Well, see, to me, yeah, that is a marriage. Like it becomes, it's kind of like we were talking earlier about, like how I said I didn't believe in romantic love. Uh, I think that you don't believe in marriage exactly the same way I don't believe in romantic love. It's that it's just a semantic thing. You don't want to, well, you don't feed into the 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 kind of like property right. ideas of it. Uh, and I've read the some great essays. On that. The difference is when you want to get. Out of the relationship, mm. um, what what obligations do you have? And 
that, I think that's the difference between marriage because it, it is it becomes a legally binding. Now, Dan, were you saying that you would have just had, preferred to have a common law marriage where you didn't bring the government at all into it? You're still independent in terms of your your own yeah, more or responsibilities. I mean, it's and, and yeah, it's and part of it is I'm I'm high-minded enough on matters of um, matters of honor and contract that the the extra step of getting a divorce I, uh, in order to get out of it always seemed really stupid to me because if I was going to get out of the commitment. Hey guys, I, I gotta I gotta step away for a minute. I gotta call. I gotta take. Okay. I would have a huge I would have a huge set of burdens and hurdles to get over on my own before I ever got to that. Oh yeah, and you still gotta file the paperwork step. Oh, right. See, it, from 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 the beginning when I first got married, that part of it just seemed kind of stupid and superfluous. Well, are you philosophically opposed to a couple filing taxes jointly? So do you think that should be something that anyone could do? Like anyone could just file their taxes jointly without getting married? Actually, or having I sent for the contract? There, there's okay. an old tradition in the U.S. called the Boston Marriage, which was a, uh, which was a life partnership that was uh, between people of the same sex and generally entered into not by homosexual sex partners, but by older people who have been widowed who, who were good friends and decided they wanted to share their household and expenses and taxes and whatnot. And I think that's okay. that's a tradition that ought to be brought back. Um, it's it's like what the kind of like what domestic partnerships were before they became de facto gay marriage. They were a form of social contract designed to allow um, widowed parents or widowed grandparents uh, to socially partner with their children who were their caretakers to make all the business about um, finances a lot easier to manage. Finances benefit. Now, this reminds me of something I read in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He was talking about um, this, and he was basically saying that as a Christian, Christians have their own form of marriage, and the government has their own uh, form of marriage, and, and those should be two different things. If you want to have certain laws about what a Christian marriage can be, that should be all decided by the church. And Christians can go to a Christian church and have a Christian marriage and sign a Christian marriage license that has all the particular rules about one man, one woman, no divorce, blah, blah, blah. But that shouldn't have anything to do with the secular marriage. And, and I totally agree with that. You I know, agree. I think we, could have, we could have any of those kind of partnerships, whether they're romantic or sexual or not. I mean, there, there could be, there could be a, a man and a woman who are both asexual and they never have any romantic relations, but they, they could still be companions and partners and they would want to do that thing. And Absolutely. It would be, it'd be the same as us not being able to drink alcohol because there's some Muslims around. Right. You know, and, and so, and that was put forth by C.S. Lewis. No, not necessarily a friend of an atheist. Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting. You could bring that up to, to Christians who, who are opposed to gay marriage and, and say, well, check out what C.S. Lewis had to say about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, C.S. Lewis was married for three years before he ever slept with his wife because they didn't get married in front of the priest while she was in the hospital. Damn. Really? I didn't know that. He married her. He married her for immigration purposes because uh, she was a friend. He actually had the justice of the peace who performed their ceremony notarize a contract between the two of them that this was not a Christian marriage. There would be no sexual relations. There would be no sharing of houses. It was merely to satisfy her immigration requirements. Hmm. Now it seems like that the immigrate. I know I've heard stories about people who try to get married. To become citizens, you actually, 
it, it's a long process. You have to yeah. be married for three years or something like that, and they have to. And there's actually been a lot of cases of yeah, that's that's American law. Thought, British law in right. the early 20th century. Oh right, right. But I mean, this is also an interesting point that people would, uh, someone would come over to America, get married, have kids, get a house, and then the husband would die before the cutoff date, and they would actually get deported because they weren't married long enough to become citizens. Even though they had kids and a house and a family and a life and everything. Yeah, I, 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 my, my problem with marriage, I think, is that two, it, it's a, it's a breadbasket of a bunch of different things that doesn't, that it serves a too high a number of purposes so that it serves many of them poorly. I mean, I'd rather mm. see some of those purposes be broken out as a la carte. Um, I think that would be much longer. Is there, is there a way to, um, Define it in a in a more broad sense. It, it still it it bothers me. I think that the one thing that bothers me most about um sort of the what we were talking about and criticizing earlier about the the Christian conception of of marriage is it's it's like this you know it's like sex is like some radioactive isotope and you've got to enclose it in, in you know all these lead panels in order you know so the the Dangerous radiation doesn't get out. That seems like, um, I, I think it's superstitious. It's well, it, it is superstitious, is magical, but it's also terribly, it's terribly unromantic, and it also seems terribly unethical. Like, why would you have two people come together, you know, in this in this way, to 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 sort of contain something dangerous, and uh, that just doesn't seem like a moral arrangement to me. When I got married, I was a virgin, so was my wife, and we were immensely proud of ourselves. We were so happy. I mean, <clears throat> our honeymoon was just great because not only did we get to finally have sex all the time, <clears throat> but it was like, we did it. You know, we did it right. You know, God's happy with us. Mm -hmm. And so we saw it as sort of God sort of smiling down on us and like, you did it. You know, it's, there was always like grace and forgiveness and all that kind of stuff. And, but we, we kind of felt, pride in in what we'd accomplished, the fact that we were able to hold off that long. But I, I guess what I'm asking is, isn't, isn't there a way to um, define marriage that in, in such a way that as atheists, you know, we could say, yeah, that's 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 what I think marriage is. And, and maybe even Christians might be able to say, well, okay, yeah, that's 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 basically what I think it is also. Like, one of, one of the things that I always think about or that always went through my head when I was, you know, sort of considering the concept is that marriages between, um, you know, two, however many people, uh, it's between different people who, um, every individual, as we know, has values. And that's, that's the basis, basis of our, our own, you know, morality. Um, but we have values and we see in, in others, um, Either reciprocations of our values or, um, ways in which we can fulfill our values and ways in which we can fulfill the values of others. So I always like to look at it as, as, as marriage is an arrangement whereby we can fulfill others' values and allow them to fulfill our values. Is that, is that, I, I know that's others a, being partners or your, your partners, whatever, what do you even want to call it? Spouse, partner, whatever. Um, but it's, it's, you know, a mutual, um, 
it's a mutual benef- beneficial relationship. It, it doesn't have to be bound by, you know, one man, one woman, one, two men, two women, whatever. But it's be- between different people who see in each other a, um, uh, a reciprocation of, of their own values and they, um, it, it appeals to them, uh, for however, however long that is true. You know, I, I don't, I, the, the permanency of it, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I want to make a restriction on that to be, you know, some, this is something that's going to be permanent. Um, it could be however long as that exists, but is, is that, you know, in, in, in its broadest sense, is that, is that something that, that you see as, as a way to define it in, in a broad sense that, that theists and atheists might be able to, uh, it sounds familiar. I suppose, I, mean, I, I suppose so, but it's, I mean, that, that really is so broad that it really, I mean, it encompasses all relationships, really, friendships, business relationships, what have you. You look at someone and you say, okay, well, this part of my life I want to walk down the road looking If that is the case, then it, it, does it make any sense to, um, to, to, to set marriage aside as anything special then? I don't think so. I, I think it makes sense when you've got, particularly when you've got um, a partnership that involves um, the sharing of finances or raising children, it makes a lot of sense to have paper uh, laying out your intentions, uh, a contract of some sort. And a marriage license is kind of a, well, or at least it used to be a decent shorthand for that kind of thing. Because, you know, I mean, we've all been in relationships for a long time. We know, you know, there are days when you just don't want to live up to your heart. Or when, you know, life is tossing this way and that, and you think, you know, maybe, maybe I should just play. And when it's an impulsive thing and not, uh, and not a considered thing. Um, I think it's anytime you're, you're entering into an agreement to share a home, a, a bank account, a business, uh, raising children, anything big like that, it makes sense to enumerate obligations in some way that you can refer back to when things get wrong. I think that's just basic horse sense. So there should be some sort of a contractual Something, some sort of an, an agreement that is that is in force, in place. I think the line of demarcation that you're looking for, Zach, is probably children. Um, because you're right in the sense that what we're seeking with marriage, <clears throat> if there's no children, is just like companionship. I, me and uh, my wife used to always like finding little things where we complement each other, where I had a weakness, where she had a strength, and when we came together, it worked out better you know and and we would we would be better together than we would be apart in some things um th- those can happen between business relationships friends relationships anything like that but i think when it comes to raising kids yeah maybe maybe that's something that you want to call marriage in that you're you're married to each other and to this family and you you have a commitment and yeah of course you're going to want there's down the road you're going to feel the desire to get the hell out of there but you're going to have there needs to probably be some sort of obligation. Maybe at their weak time, they're they're going to think, well, maybe I could just get out of here because technically I don't have any any legal obligation or moral obligation or whatever. But you know, any time children are involved, takes it takes a lot of care to to not screw that up. And we've been dancing around the issue of children and not really addressing it, partly because none of us have any. Um, <laughs> but I I think. Something that has changed the whole notion of what it even means to be married is the advent of 
They're never, you didn't used to have the option to be married in child. So one automatically implied the other. And 60, 70 years ago, when the bill was introduced, that changed. And I, and, and the effects of that, and the, our, our culture is still sorting out the effects of that change. Um, we tried to cope with it in the 60s, not very well, because everyone was like, wait, I don't have to be pregnant. I can fuck around, hey. But, it was it was very impulsive and there wasn't a philosophical change that went on so much as a sudden realization of freedom, kinda of like when you move out of your parents' house. Suddenly you can do whatever you want. It takes you a while to come to grips with well yeah, but there are responsibilities associated with that, actions have consequences and that sort of thing. But the whole notion of marriage, this is one of the reasons I'm I'm kind of opposed to the word, is that the the whole notion of it is obsolete once you make children optional. The notion of partnership isn't, the notion of shared finances, shared homes, shared values, shared goals, shared life isn't. But when you take children out of the equation, the kinds of things it takes to make a partnership lasting and valuable for both parties are very different than what it is when the focus is on keeping the home stable so that the children are in a safe environment to grow up in. But, okay, so what are your thoughts then about, um, about raising children, do you think that it should be, um, ma- you think marriage is optional for that, or do you think marriage should be mandatory for raising children? Well, I, I get, I'm a libertarian, so I get fancy anything mandatory gets thrown around. But, uh, um, I think, I think an opti- the optimal setup for raising children is actually something we haven't seen a lot of for about 60 or 80 years. It's a setup where you have a household where there are a plurality of adults, not just two, but not just two, but you have um, whether it's uh, living relatives or you have uh, servants in the house that are effectively part of the family or something like that. I don't think two people are up to the task of raising children. Now, that said, a lot of two-parent, a lot of two-parent homes pull it off admirably, and some one-parent homes pull it off admirably, and, and, and it's astonishing. But the the idea of the nuclear family, where you've got two parents and however many kids isolated from the rest of the world, I think gives short shrift to the children, because the entire point of raising children is to raise adaptable, responsible, and self-confident adults. And no matter how good your role models are, I don't think you can do that when you've got two of them, who are, are you also getting responsible into- for all, who are also responsible for all your material needs as well. Are you, are you getting into that, that idea that the village raises the child, that the neighbors and, and everyone in the community should be involved? Or, do you, that, or are you saying like a polyamorous situation with kids? Well, effectively... Because you know that most people don't get down with that. Right. Well, just effectively, it's, from, well effectively, from the child's point of view, I think the two situations are equivalent. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't agree with Hillary Clinton as much of anything, but on that point, I think she's right. He, he, a healthy childhood is characterized by varied interactions with a lot of different adults. Right, and that's why I have public schools and and daycares and and these well, yeah, public things. schools don't actually public schools don't actually help in the maturation process very much. They help in the socialization process, which is also important. But public okay. schools are age segregated. You don't interact with people older and younger than yourself very much, except for one teacher who's spread thin over thirty students. You don't get good interaction. Right. Um, and that, I'm, I think that I'm model all, actually stifles maturation rather than encourages. Now it encourages the development of other social skills, 
and very important in dealing with peers. But it's it, it's tilting the balance too far the other way. Well, you know, there, there's different sorts of community outreach. I mean, things like churches or whatever. You know, single parents tend to definitely thrive in, in, in social situations like churches where they have a huge Absolutely. circle of, of support and they have, have, they always have someone to call, always have someone to come over to bring groceries to watch the kids to, to care about them. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I can totally see that. I, I think, I mean, it seems like everyone's raised around multiple adults. No one's ever been like, the only adults I've ever known are my parents. Or my teacher. No, no, that, no, but there is a, there is a proprietary attitude that parents have towards their children. Uh, particularly, you know, we're, we're two generations out from a situation where it's common to have, um, a lot of, a lot of extended family. And the further away we get from that, the, the more proprietary the attitude that parents have towards children. Yes, this is my child. I will raise them how I want to. None of mm. your business. I think that's very unhealthy. Children get it, and this isn't everybody, but increasingly children are seen as pets or property. They fulfill the vanity of the parents or they um, serve the interests of the parents, and I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's healthy for the child. I don't think it demonstrates a lot of maturity on the part of the parents, and I don't think it's healthy in the long run for society. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Very interesting, guys. Um... Well, we're just about to the end of our time here. This is a really great impromptu discussion. Yeah. And um, we might have to pick this up uh, sometime a little bit later. It would be interesting to uh, to have Kevin and Reed all of them listen to this and do like a Christian's hour when they talk about this stuff. Absolutely. We'll have to flip that on over to them. All right. Well, thanks, guys, and we will see you next time on Apple Let me just pop in this intro.